0: pray for us as we as we get started. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again this morning. We praise you as we have been singing here, or may we always glory in our Redeemer. May we always look forward to the day that we'll see you face to face. Father, just pray this morning that we would Be attentive to your word. Father, we know that it will do its work in the lives of those who hear it. We praise your holy name, in Christ's name, amen. This morning we are continuing our study in Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians written by the Apostle Paul. We find ourselves, uh, having made it through chapter 1, and now in chapter 2, last week we, uh, we heard uh, the first, or we preached through the first three verses of uh, chapter 2, and today we find ourselves specifically in chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, today it's going to feel like that we uh, have slowed, slowed down significantly, and I think you'll see why in a moment. I've titled my sermon, The part two of uh, the title, Trophies of Grace Christ's Astounding Intervention. Let me read chapter two, verses one through ten, for for context. Please follow along as I read. I'm reading out of the New American Standard, Standard Version of the Bible. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God." not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Well, over 150 years ago, the Scottish pastor Alexander White had an appointment with a member of his church, a man named Dr. Carmen, a physician of Edinburgh. As their time came to an end... Dr. Carman looked at Dr. White with an earnest look and asked, Now have ye any word for an old sinner? It took my breath away, said Dr. White. He was an old saint. (coughs) But it is the paradox of grace that the greatest saints feel as as though they are the greatest sinners. So I just rose up, he says, and held out my hand to him and I said to him, he delighteth in mercy. And I had nothing else to say, so I just escaped the room. The next morning, Dr. White received a letter. Opening it, opening it, he found these words written by Dr. Carmen. It says this Dear friend, I will never doubt him again. The sins of my youth, I was near the gates of hell. But that word of God from you comforted me, and I will never doubt him again. I will never despair again. If the devil cast my sin in my teeth, I will say, Yes, it is all true, and you cannot tell the half of it. But I have to do with the one who delighteth in mercy. Beloved, oh that we oh that we would understand. Truly understand that we serve a God who delights in mercy, who delights in showing us mercy. Just last week we saw the plight, in verses 1 through 3, we saw the plight of the unsaved and the unbelieving person. If you didn't listen to last week's sermon, I hope that you'll take time to listen because you won't fully grasp the importance of God's mercy if you don't fully grasp the depths of your sin. You see that the unbeliever is dead in his trespasses and sins. He is literally a dead man walking according to the ruler of this world. This is true of every person who has ever lived outside of the Lord Jesus You see, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We we were all doomed and were part of the realm of darkness ruled by Satan. We were debauched, wicked men, deserving God's wrath for our sin. And as such, according to Paul in verse 3, we were all children of wrath, even as the rest. You see, we were no better than anyone else. How dare we look down on those who are trapped in their sin? Cuz we didn't do anything. We didn't do anything that justified us before God. We faced the wrath, faced the wrath of sin for our for of God that is for our sins and trespasses. You see we had no excuse before the holy God whom we had offended. We completely deserved the wrath that we faced. And there was absolutely nothing, nothing that we could have done to thwart that coming wrath. The Apostle Paul described our situation in Colossians 2.14. He says that we had a certificate of debt, debt consisting of decrees against us which were hostile to us. We had this certificate of debt accrued against our account an account that we could never, ever repay. We were stuck in the quagmire of our sin, and we could never have extricated ourselves. When I was young, we owned a Jeep CJ5. Uh, Some of you men, I'm sure, know what that is and are probably uh, somewhat jealous of hearing that. It was a great vehicle. We enjoyed having it. One day, my stepdad took the Jeep out in the woods and he got it stuck. It was miles from anywhere, and there was nothing he could do to get it out of the mud. It was actually high-centered if you uh, you know on, the, on the, the, the axle on a stump, which didn't allow the, the wheels to get any traction. Finally, he had to leave and find someone who, with a winch who was able to, or willing to help him get out. And after hours of work, they were able to get the, the Jeep out of the mud. You see, this is a little glimpse of, just a small glimpse of our situation prior to Christ. Try as we might... We were stuck in the mud, and we could never have extricated ourselves from that quagmire of sin. We needed someone to help us out, or to actually get us out of the mud. It's not as if we contributed anything to that. We needed someone to do it for us. If not for the truths revealed in the next few verses, verses 4-7, through you and I would continue to be in that dreadful place. We would continue to be stuck. We would continue to be stuck in the quagmire of our sinfulness. We would still be dead, dead in our sins and trespasses. You would still be walking according to the ways of this world on the path to destruction. You would be regularly indulging in the desires of your flesh and of the mind, and you would be facing the wrath of God forever. Thankfully, in His mercy, God doesn't leave us in that position. Let me emphasize that in the first three verses of chapter 2, Paul paints the bleakest of pictures of your life prior to Christ saving you. You were totally incapable of doing anything about it. Now, before we jump into the next verses of chapter 2, I want to remind you a couple of things. In chapter one, God or Paul God through Paul, that is, has revealed his eternal plan and Jesus his Son, through Paul his apostle. The book of Ephesians teaches us, then, uh, starting in chapter one, what it means to be in Christ. It shows us what it means to be one with Jesus Christ and part of his body, the church. It also shows us that God has sovereignly planned to place each Christian into the body of Christ before the world began. In verses 1 through 14, Paul presents the master plan of God in eternity past. Then in verses 15 through 23, he prays that the Ephesian church would understand that plan. And by extension, he's praying that we would understand that plan as we read and study his, his letter that we would really grasp the meaning of being in Christ and being part of God's eternal plan. According to Paul, we've been given the amazing privilege of being a part of God's plan of redeeming the entire world. Now I want to remind you that Paul uses this letter to encourage and strengthen the church at Ephesus, to stand strong and to take the, the gospel to the Jews and Gentiles around them. He wanted them and us, by extension, to recognize that as Christians, we have been granted the very power of God in doing so. You see, He didn't just save you by simply forgiving your sins, which He obviously did this. He didn't save you just to leave you on the bench. He put you in the game, so to speak. He gave you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and sealed you with the Holy Spirit. He gave you the very power of God. Now, that's important because as you, as a Christian, as you've been saved, you should live according to that salvation. You should live according to the fact that you've been given the power of God. And you should understand that all of this was given to you at the moment of salvation. You didn't have to have some second blessing in order to receive it. It's all been given to you. You don't have to wait for it. You already have it. And you shouldn't walk around as a Christian then feeling defeated. It should be the last thing you should be doing. You are truly victorious in Christ. And Paul wanted the Ephesian church to know this and live according to this truth. And in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 19, he prayed that the Ephesian church would, have, would grasp the exceeding greatness of the power of God toward those, who believe, those of us who believe, that they would truly grasp it. In other words, he prayed that they would fully understand all that God can accomplish through a group of Christians who truly live according to this great truth. That's important for us to understand, because in just a a bit, we're going to, to go through our vision for 2020 and beyond here at Grace Bible Church. Can you imagine, just imagine with me for a moment, all that we could accomplish here at this small gathering, all that we could accomplish if we just live according to these great truths, if we just live according to the fact that we have truly have the power of God residing within us. Now that brings us to chapter 2. Before we can completely grasp the the amazing nature of what God has done for us in Christ, we must again be reminded of of who we were before Christ saved us. We must... Come to understand how we were saved from the realm of darkness and made to walk according to His marvelous light. According to John MacArthur, he says this about chapter 2. He says, We find the Apostle Paul describing the very process of salvation, the very act of salvation, the very miracle of salvation that drew us into, this, into realizing God's eternal plan. End quote. Now, as I've already alluded the first three verses of this chap- of chapter two have shown us our lost, the lostness of our condition prior to Christ. In the next three verses, and, and starting in verse four, Paul gives us four explanations why you, why you can be confident that God has changed your earthly path and, and your eternal destiny from His wrath <coughs> to reign. You can be confident of this because, first of His great mercy. Secondly, because of His great love. Thirdly, because of His immense power. And fourth, because of His overwhelming glory. Now let's look at the first explanation, why you can be confident in what God has done on your behalf. You can be confident because of His rich mercy. Now, I want to tell you, sometimes this is what happens. I put this outline together, and I had every intention to preach verses 4-7. through then I started studying, then I started writing, and we're only going to get through verse 4a this morning. And that is just the first point. So please forgive me. But in order to give us some structure, I've divided this into into several, I think it's four main truths about God's mercy. God's mercy. First, you deserved God's wrath. That's That's verse 3. For your sins. But He has unilaterally intervened. He has unilaterally intervened. Now, unilateral, una is one. So He is is on His own. He has intervened into your life. No help. Just Him. Look at the first two words of verse 4. But God. Brethren, these are the two greatest words of the Bible. De theos. Actually, it's ha de theos, but for our purposes, we're just going to boil it down to de theos. This little conjunction, de, means everything to the Christian. In the words of Howard Honer, the commentator on Ephesians, he says this The sinners described in verses 1 through 3 could only could only, and make sure you understand that, let me emphasize, could only anticipate God's wrath. But the two-letter conjunction, this two-letter conjunction introduces the wonderful news of God's grace. End quote. You see, you were dead in your sins and trespasses. We've already gone over this. But I want to make sure that I emphasize you could do nothing about it. You were totally incapable. There was a total inability to do anything about it. You were stuck in your pagan ways. You were stuck in your self-confident arrogance. You loved the world, and you loved all that it stood for. You indulged in the lust of the flesh, and you ignored your conscience. That's who you were before Christ. At my secular job, we are asked to watch some short videos which cover the do's and don'ts of computer usage. Now I find in mo- most people these 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 uh, these videos have bec- become quite popular at work, and, and because they're pretty hilarious. What what happens is is they're usually set around someone trying to decide what password to use or whether to leave their laptop unattended at, at a biz in a busy restaurant. The person is uh, is always surrounded by their good and bad angels. So there's the good angel on one side and there's the bad angel on the other. The good angel represents good judgment the bad angel represents human error now the good angel is boring and always suggests doing the right thing like you know packing up your laptop when you're in a busy place the bad angel though is a is a slob with unruly hair and a bathrobe and he always urges them to do the wrong thing but he's never around when the consequences come he's never there and that's what makes it so funny, is that he's sitting there and he's always saying, oh yeah, just leave it there, it would be fine. And then when it happens, he's never around whenever the consequences come down. Friend, before these two verses, or two words in verse 4, you had no choice but to listen to the slob in his bathrobe. You had no other choice. That's all you could hear. There was no good angel. This is all that you could do. Even when you tried to do the right things, your motives were tainted by your sinful nature. That's why the prophet can say in Isaiah 64, 6, All our righteous deeds are like filthy garments because they're tainted by our sinful nature, prior to Christ, that is. But God. But God. You see, with these two words, Paul is pointing them back to chapter 1. He reminds, them, he reminds the Ephesians of all that he has said about God's plan of, re- of redemption in Christ. You see, there are two different kingdoms or realms. There's the kingdom of darkness and there's the kingdom of light. You were once part of the kingdom of darkness, but God has intervened in your life, if you are a Christian. You were once dead in your sins and trespasses, but God has saved you and made you alive. But God... In the words of R.C. Sproul, he says this, God just doesn't doesn't just throw you a life preserver, or doesn't just throw a life preserver to a drowning person. He goes to the bottom of the sea. He pulls the corpse from the bottom of the sea. He takes him up on the bank. He breathes into him the breath of life, and he makes him alive. God does this unilaterally. You had nothing to do with it. Dead people don't generally help with anything. Beloved, you have to recognize, according to the Word of God, salvation is all of God. You are saved by His grace. You were chosen from the foundation of the world. You were predestined to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. And all of this was done before you or I could make a choice one way or another any other interpretation of, this, of these things cannot sk- stand scrutiny. And believe me, people have tried. Some people teach that God looked down the corridor of time and saw the choices that you would make, the person that you would be, and He, he saw you and he, he saw what you would do, and he, he saw that you would choose Him of your own free will, and He saved you based on that foreseen faith. He didn't save others because he saw that they would reject Christ, so that he saw that they would not choose them based on their lack of faith. But see, this places the ultimate cause for salvation on man, not God. Therefore, this understanding doesn't account for the sovereignty of God. It's true that he knows the end from the beginning because he exists outside of time. According to Richard Mayhew, he says this, We must understand that the events of the future take place because God has decreed them to take place. According to Ephesians 1.11, God works all things according to the counsel of His will. You get that, right? He, He is the one who, according to His own will, He unilaterally acts and He does what He pleases. He goes on to say, Thus God does not form His decree because He knows the future. Stop right there. He doesn't form what he believes what's going to happen in the future because he knows it. He know Mayhew goes on to say he knows the future because he has decreed the future. End quote. He has decreed it. He knows the future. He is not merely reacting to the future. He has decreed the future. Furthermore, if it were true that God looked down the corridors of time, then Paul's ver- words in verses 1-3 through 3 must be understood differently. In other words, we would not have been fully dead with no ability to resurrect ourselves. And if we, were not, if we were not fully dead and we were able to choose God, if we were able to do one thing or another to choose God, then this would nullify grace. Wouldn't be truly grace, would it? Salvation would be based on our merit, which violates Paul's statement in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that your salvation is by grace, through faith, faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. Friends, if we have anything to do with our salvation, then our salvation is a result of works. Anything to do with it. This is what makes these two words in chapter 2, verse 4, but God so pivotal to our understanding of salvation. Paul's argument is that your salvation is a demonstration of God's power. He is the only one who can save us from the realm of darkness. He is the only one who can make us alive together with Christ. He is the only one who can raise us up with Christ and seat us with Him in the heavenly places with Him. Beloved... You or I could never have done that. I've said it before. You could stack all your good works up, stack them to the ceiling, but you would never reach God. You would never reach the throne of God. Now, we have to understand that He saved us, and He's given us the very power of God in us. You know what that means? We've been given the power to live according to His great mercy and love. And we've also been given the ministry of the gospel, the ministry of reconciliation. And I think that's important for us to understand and make that connection. That it's the gospel, it's the good news of Christ that God uses to make people alive in Christ. They hear the message and they're made alive. And it's you and I that get to participate in that ministry. Just listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all of these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Stop right there, and it says clearly that God unilaterally acted. All these things are from God. He reconciled us to himself, but he also gave us the ministry of reconciliation that we could go and spread the good news of this gospel. He goes on in 19, Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. As such, you, you and I, have been given the power to effectively share the gospel of Jesus Christ and see others come to know the power of His great mercy and love. You see, God does <clears throat> excuse me, God does the work. God unilaterally acts to save you and I, and He unilaterally acts to save anyone who comes to Christ, but I'm telling you, according to the word of God, that you and I participate by being the ones who share the message. Look at the second main point, or the second main truth, about God's rich mercy. We all deserve God's wrath for sins, but He has chosen to show mercy to some. He has chosen to show mercy to some. (coughs) Paul goes on, look at your text, to describe God as being rich in mercy. The question is, what does Paul mean by mercy? aristotle defined mercy as the emotional concern for those who undeservedly suffered some calamity as you may have heard southern california is on fire yet again this year some of us some of us know people who have been directly affected by those fires our old neighborhood in California actually was the neighborhood that was or one of the neighborhoods that was evacuated the largest Evacuation due to fire, I think, in the history of our nation, is what I read. Don't don't quote me on that, but I think that's true. Um, there have been even some homes destroyed because of the fire. Matter of fact, Angie and I had a had a discussion. When we were there, whether or not the fire could jump the river, and jump the 14 freeway and get over into where our neighborhood was at. And I said no. She said yes. Well, she was right because it. Jumped the 14 freeway, jumped the river, jumped the 14 freeway, and it was burning above our neighborhood. So, so um, I guess I've been counted, counted um, wrong. But here's the thing what we have to understand is these people have done nothing to deserve this calamity of this fire. They've done nothing to deserve the calamity that has befallen them, and we should feel bad for them, right? We should, we should be concerned for them should have compassion to them. We should, if we ha- are in, are able to, we should reach out to help them. You see, that is Aristotle's example of, or this is an example of Aristotle's definition of mercy, that, that we would feel compassion for those who are in a situation that they can't help, that they didn't create for themselves. The word translated mercy is used two hundred over 230 times in the Septuagint, which is the... Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word is translated from seven different Hebrew words, but by and large, over two hundred times, the word is translated from the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed. You may have heard of that word. It's defined. Hesed is defined as steadfast, loyal covenant love, and it's spoken of as the love that that it's used of God, who shows mercy to His people with whom He has made a covenant. It's speaking of God's mercy and compassion toward His people Israel, specifically. Now, in Isaiah 63, 7, this word is used. It says, "...I shall make mention of the loving kindness, the hesed of the Lord, of Yahweh, the praises of Yahweh, according to all that Yahweh has granted us, and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which He has granted them according to His compassion, and according to the abundance of His hesed." Of his loving kindnesses. God has made a covenant with his people Israel, therefore he is faithful to extend Hesed, or mercy, compassion to them. In Exodus 34 6, Yahweh proclaimed to Moses, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in Hesed, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity. Transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. You see, in the Old Testament, God's loving kindness is seen as his, God's kindness toward those who are undeserving of this kindness. They didn't do anything to deserve it. He showed, iniqu- or showed forgiveness toward iniquity. The word is used 27 times in the New Testament. Paul uses it, Paul himself uses it ten times, but he only uses it once here in Ephesians. This, in this verse, sometimes it has the idea of compassion or, compiti- or pity on those who are suffering mis- misfortune. These are this is seen in the actions of the Good Samaritan in Luke ten thirty seven. Except for two Hebrew songs in Luke one, mercy in the New Testament refers to a covenant relationship, or does not refer to, refer to a covenant relationship. So, except for two instances in Luke, it does not refer to a covenant relationship, but rather to pity, compassion, and compassion toward those who are suffering misfortune. Now, having said all that, in our current passage, what Paul is speaking to is God's compassion toward sinners who are suffering the calamity of sin. Now, we must recognize that calamity for sin is not something undeserved. That's where it breaks down with Aristotle's definition of mercy. Yet God extends His mercy toward sinners because of His hesed, because of His loving kindness toward them. We must recognize that showing mercy then to those who deserve calamity is a greater form of mercy. It is a greater form of compassion. It is a greater form of love. Let's look at, the third, look at the third truth about God's mercy. We all deserve God's wrath for our sin. Why has He shown mercy only to some? Why has He shown mercy only to some? That should be the, the big question that's hanging out there, right? Why only to some? If God chooses... Why? Only some. First, it is God's sovereign choice to show mercy on some while he does not upon others. It's According to his sovereign choice. Psalm 134, let me write it down, but I think it's 134, says this, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Because of your loving kindness, because of your truth, why should the nation say, where now is their God? Then there's the answer. This is the answer. But our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. See, our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. It is his sovereign choice to show mercy upon some and not upon others. If you want to turn to Romans 9, turn to Romans 9. I want to walk us through, briefly walk us through Romans 9 don't have time to completely exposit this, but I hope to give us some insight into God's mercy. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Brethren, beloved, we may struggle with it, but the truth is clear to see. God chooses whom he will show mercy toward. We can't mitigate this truth without falling into great error. If we try to mitigate the truth, then we we fall into error. But Paul doesn't leave us there, right? Look at verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth, so that he has mercy on whom he desires, And he hardens whom he desires. You see, again, Paul is reiterating the fact that God has the the mercy or the, the right, that is, to show mercy and on whom he will show mercy on and harden whom he sees fit. It even says that he raised Pharaoh up to demonstrate his great power so that his his name might be proclaimed throughout the earth. He raised him up for that very purpose. Look at verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? You see, what Paul is anticipating is the, the argument. If God doesn't show mercy on me, then how does he find fault? How is there fault in me if God doesn't? If God is the one not showing mercy, he first says, "His first answer is, is that who are you to answer back to God? Who are you to? Who is? Who are you, the thing molded to say to the the molder? Why did you make me like this?" He doesn't leave it there. We don't have any right to question him, but I think, I think we understand that he is God who is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. Now, I understand, and I think Paul does as well, that this answer may not be satis- completely satisfactory, that we may not be able to leave it there. So, we see that not only is it God's sovereign choice to show mercy on some, but we must understand, get this, this is, we have to understand this, that we all deserve his wrath. And he chooses to show mercy on some while he chooses to demonstrate his wrath toward others. You see, that's the key to understanding this. We all deserve his wrath. Just listen to verse 21, or read along with me. Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump? One vessel for honorable use and another for common use. Let's stop right there. This is the key, I believe, to understanding uh, who God. Why this is key to understanding God's mercy and why He extends it to some and others He doesn't. Notice that Paul says, "From the same lump." You see, we are all from the same lump. We are all children of wrath. In the words of Paul in Ephesians two three. Among them, we too, you and I, as Christians, we too all formerly lived according uh, in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. And he doesn't stop there. He says, even as the rest. Even as the rest of the world that we see right now doing all these things, we were no different. We were children of wrath as well. From the same lump. From the same lump. Again, listen to Dr. Mayhew. Paul pictures God as a potter fashioning vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy from the same lump of clay. Because he calls the elect vessels of mercy, it is right to infer that he contemplates the clay as a sinful lump. As a sinful lump. For one can be merciful only to vessels that are in undeserving of mercy, end quote. You get the point? You have to understand, you have to recognize, brother and sister, brethren, beloved, you have to recognize that you are no better than any other. You are no better. You were all from the same sinful lump. Christians, you are vessels of mercy. You were by nature as wicked as the others, but God had compassion on you, and He plucked you out as brands out of the fire. He stopped you in your course of sinning when you were marching to hell. He turned you back to Him by sincere repentance. Oh, here is the banner of love He has displayed over you. End quote. That was Thomas Watson. I only wish I had such great words. Romans nine twenty two to twenty four gives us further insight into God's sovereign choice. Just listen to these Ver- verses. Verse nine, verse twenty two. What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And He did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom He also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. In other words, God has, could have instantly judged those in rebellion. He could have instantly done it. He could have instantly judged Adam and Eve. But according to these verses, Paul gives us four reasons why God has allowed evil to exist. First, to demonstrate His wrath. Second, to make His power known. Third, to show His patience. And fourth, to reveal the riches of His glory. You see, here's the amazing part. God gets the glory both ways. You see, in this passage, Paul is very careful to show in the grammar in, in Romans 9 verses 23 to 24 he's very careful to show in the grammar that that he that God does not equally work belief and unbelief the two aren't perfectly symmetrical in other words God in, in we're talking about in time before time in eternity God does not contemplate all humanity as unfallen and morally neutral he doesn't arbitrarily, arbitrarily decide to work sin and unbelief in some and faith and belief in others. You see, God does decree both the salvation of some and the damnation of others, but there's, some, there's asymmetric, or this is asymmetric. There's asymmetry to His decrees. You see, here in Romans 9, we see that. This is seen by the fact that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses the active voice when he speaks of the vessels of mercy. God actively prepared them. And he uses the passive voice when speaking of the vessel of wrath. You see, when God chose some and not others for salvation, he regarded them not as morally neutral, but as already fallen creatures. And in the case of the elect, he actively intervenes. And in the case of the non-elect, he chooses to leave them in their state of sinfulness and then punish them for their sins. In other words, the vessels of mercy receive his mercy, for they're not punished as their sins deserved. But the vessels of wrath receive justice, for they are rightly condemned as their sins deserved. It leaves us with we didn't do, we we don't deserve the mercy that we received. We deserve the wrath. But God chose in his compassion not to show his wrath toward us, yet poured it out on his son. And again, in both cases, God gets the glory. And in neither case can God rightly be charged with unrighteousness. Because all, this is the key, all are guilty. And because he is not obligated to show his grace to any. What right, if, if we're judged for our sins, what right are we to answer back? What right have we? We are sinful. If God shows mercy, what, do we, what can we say except to be thankful? You must deserve, or must understand then that he that you deserve his wrath. Yet in Christ you received his rich mercy, and not only has he spared your life, but he has seated you in the heavenlies in Christ. Just listen to Charles Spurgeon. God is in his infinite mercy has devised a way by which justice can be satisfied, and yet mercy can be triumphant. Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the Father, took upon himself the form of man and offered unto divine justice that which was accepted as an equivalent for the punishment due to all his people. End quote. You had nothing but your sin before Christ saved you. you. But instead of wrath, you received adoption as sons. Undeservedly. Undeservedly. You didn't do anything to deserve it. But you will get to enjoy him forever if you know him. Charles Spurgeon again says this, our sinnership is that, our sinnership is that emptiness into which the Lord pours his mercy, end quote. I I can't emphasize that enough. I can't emphasize that enough. That, We had nothing. We bring nothing but our sin to the altar of salvation. That's it. It's the only thing we had to offer. Because of His great mercy, you go from being lost forever to becoming a son who will dwell with Him forever. You know, if you have a heart for the lost, I would assume and I hope that you're struggling with the fact that many will suffer God's wrath. Some of you here today face His wrath because unless you call out for His mercy. Beloved, let me make sure you understand. The Bible doesn't teach stark determinism. You know, everything has been determined, so I don't need to do anything. Yes, God has decreed. I I firmly believe that the Bible teaches that God has decreed, He knows the future because He has decreed the future. But it's not stark determinism, meaning that I don't have to do anything. Uh, That goes back to 2 Corinthians 5 18 through 21. We get to be a part of this. We get to be a part of sharing the gospel. We get to be a part of calling people to know Christ, calling people to turn to Christ. We need to get, or we get to be a part of getting people to see their need for Christ. <coughs> Listen to Dwight Moody. A man does not get grace till he comes down to the ground, till he sees his, until he sees that he needs grace. When a man stoops to the dust and acknowledges that he needs mercy, then it is, it, it is that that the Lord, at that time, that the Lord will give him grace. End quote. We need to, as we share the gospel, we need to impress upon people their need. We need to show them verses 1 through 3. We need to help them understand their lostness, their total inability. Now, according to this, it's God that does the work. but We have to call them. We have to share the gospel. We have to call them to repent. Now, just to those who don't know the Lord Jesus, lost souls, I pray that you would consider the rich mercies of God. Some of you may even think that your sin is too great to be saved. Oh, that you would consider that God's power has overcome sin and death, and the richness of his mercy cannot be exalted. That's what Paul says. But God, who is rich, rich in mercy. Just how rich is God's mercy? Just how rich is it? Let me end with the eloquent answer of Charles Spurgeon God's mercy is so great that you may sooner drain the sea of its water or deprive the sun of its light or make space too narrow than diminish the great mercy of our God, End quote. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning again for your infinite matchless grace and for your great rich mercy. You've shown upon those who don't deserve it. We're all from that same sinful lump. And you choose, you are God in heaven, you do whatever you please. You choose those whom you would show mercy upon. It's an inescapable truth. But Lord, we would never want to lose sight of the fact that we do not deserve your mercy. Yet we know the richness of it. We see the richness of it. As uh, Pastor Spurgeon said, we could never diminish it. Father, we pray, I pray, that those who don't know you here today will come to see that the Lord Jesus took upon himself your wrath so that we might not have to. If only we would believe. If only we would call out for your mercy. If only we would love Christ. I pray that those who don't would. I pray that those who do would take this wonderful news of the Lord Jesus and spread it throughout. Father, that we would participate in sharing the gospel in that ministry of reconciliation. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We thank you and praise you this morning in Christ's name. Amen.